I'm Dr. Scott Masson here with Paideia today and my colleague and friend, uh, Dr. Bill Friesen. We are looking today at uh, Sir Gawain and the Green Knight uh, medieval uh, tale. Uh, last time we left off with uh, some various discussions of the introductory uh, features of, the, of this uh, tale and we left off uh, in a way that I'm going to now hand over to Dr. Friesen to carry us forward. Go ahead, Bill. Thank you, Dr. Masson. Um, yes, this will be our third and final installment on Sir Gowan and the Green Knight uh, before moving on to the realms of Chaucer. And um, as some of you may recall, we were discussing uh, the arrival of Gowan at the uh, castle of Sir Bursalak and uh, how he had been welcomed there. And we talked about the uh, two women that Gowan met there, the one beautiful and the other one not so much. And we had another game proposed, the second great game of Sir Gowan and the Green Knight, and this is sometimes referred to as the hunting game. And it was proposed that uh, whatever Sir Bursalak would win in the wild woods and spaces around his castle, he would turn over to Gawain. But Gawain, in turn, would turn over whatever he had won, whatever spoils he had won in the court while uh, Sir Bursalak was away which, uh, as we noted last time, was a bit of a sketchy proposition um, because it's not made clear exactly what Sir Gawain would be capturing, hunting down in the castle, but it was implied that it was perhaps something a little bit on the risque side. Mm. And we didn't discuss uh, the hunts themselves nor the upcoming seduction scenes. We have three hunts and three seduction scenes, which are obviously meant to be paired off one against the other. Mm. And uh, we did talk, however, a little bit about this too was sealed not as merely an agreement, but that the language of the covenant was again invoked, which is extremely important to understanding the violations that occur and the punishments that derive from them. Mm -hmm. Now, we can't really talk at length uh, about medieval hunting practices, but I should mention a few things very, very briefly at the front end here. Um, a lot of people are unaware that during the Middle Ages, um, meat was obviously something that was very much valued uh, amongst the community, and that some of this was raised domestically, to be sure. In fact, there was a fair amount of it that was raised domestically. But what we tend to lose sight of nowadays is that also a lot of the game that was brought in, the, the, the meat that was brought in, was brought in by hunting. And the person who was usually tasked in the community with hunting and who had the resources with which to do it were the nobles in the area. Um, to this very day, hunting is seen very much as an aristocratic undertaking in England and is tied to the long, long tradition that goes uh, back into the dark mists of history. Mm. So um, when Sir Bursalak goes out hunting, he is doing something intrinsically aristocratic. Um, it, it's part of a, a social um, section to which Gowing himself actually belongs. Mm -hmm. Now, there's a few other things we probably need to note here. Um, uh, it's at this juncture in the text where it is mentioned to Sir Gowan also that the Green Chapel, where he has to meet the Green Knight, is actually close at hand. And so Gawain's, the danger of Gawain not fulfilling his first covenant when it comes to the beheading game uh, is, seems to be alleviated, at least in terms of him finding the place where he can fulfill his promises. Right. Uh, so the pressure is off, and Gawain, for the first time in the text, is allowed to dally somewhat. And it's 
very dangerous dalliance that he undertakes here. Um, was there something by way of introduction to the hunts and the seductions that you wanted to say, Dr. Masson? Well, I think we're going to get into the specifics of the hunts and the animals that were hunted uh, and uh, those sorts of features and the way in which, which the scenes are presented, I think, but I think those are best done by looking at them specifically there. Sure. Um, I don't know if there's any significance to the fact that there are three hunts. Um, the number three uh, is this, um, I mean, whenever one deals with numbers, the question of why that particular number, if it has any significance, comes to the fore. Um, for, for, for a Christian poet, uh, three is, has connotations of the Trinity, but also the three days of the you know, death and resurrection of Christ. You know, is it that any connection there? Um, who knows? The three temptations, maybe even of Peter, the three denials, this sort of thing. Yes, I think you've done a, a very good job uh, in previous podcasts of underscoring the fact that the medieval imagination is not just enormously figurative and allegoric, uh, allegorical and symbolic and very alive to icons and iconographic significance, but it's also tied up with that whole package, uh, that whole worldview, um, is there fascinations with numbers and numerology and all the things that tie into that. You've just signaled here that uh, this has a, uh, in the uh, Middle Ages, this has a, uh, a theological, a Christian foundation um, that is, of course, connected uh, first and foremost with the Gospels and the narrative there and the events in there. Um, nobody's going to simply mention three and move on. We saw also that uh, the Gawain poet, um, is himself extremely interested in numbers when we had that discussion about the pentangle and yeah. the five this and that and the five the other thing if we look at the careful balancing of fits and stanzas and mentions of um red and green and so on and so forth um yeah we we probably have to give a fair amount of significance to the fact that it's three on three three hunts and three seduction scenes yeah. what 